Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And I guess, Jim, we should probably uh, couch our first martini as a potentially good martini. We've got the new numbers out from the Census Bureau, and so we now know which states will be losing or gaining seats in the House of Representatives for the next 10 years. And a lot of blue states, or at least ones with blue governors, Democratic governors, are losing seats. Some with uh, Republican governors and legislatures are gaining seats, but it's not universal. Uh, Texas is gaining two seats. They will now have 40 electoral votes. Uh, Florida will pick up one. Uh, New York is losing one. Illinois is losing one. Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are all losing one. So you could say it's a Rust Belt issue as well. West Virginia also losing one. North Carolina gaining one. Colorado gaining one. Montana gaining one. Oregon gaining one. And California actually losing one for the first time ever. And so, Jim, in addition to losing the seats, uh, depending on how the states do it, whether it's the legislature, whether it's these supposedly uh, nonpartisan commissions, uh, they're going to be redrawing lines. And even in the states where there aren't losses or gains of seats, they'll probably be nudging the lines here and there. So overall, you would think where seats are gained, you would think it's a it's a good opportunity, at least for Republicans. And it shows you that some of these much ballyhooed blue state governors and states where the Democrats run everything, uh, people don't love living there. Yeah. And look, I I just grabbed this in the morning jolt as moderately good news for the Republican Party. There's a a wrinkle or two to think about, which I'll get to in a second. But generally, if I rattle off the states, Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, Oregon and Texas, you, you know, people who know politics say, oh, you know, those are mostly Republican states, you know, Oregon and Colorado, maybe not so much, but uh, Trump won Florida, Montana, North Carolina, even though it was close. And, you know, you won Texas. Yeah, it was closer than it usually was in Texas. And, you know, uh, Texas Democrats are always convinced that they're going to make a big comeback there. But by and large, you look at that like, okay, there's a bunch of electoral votes that are going to end up there. And they're coming generally from blue states, California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Uh, Trump won West Virginia, Trump won Ohio. But otherwise, you know, those are blue states. He won Michigan the first time around. Um, it does feel pretty significant that California for the first time is losing a seat. And it's kind of this continuous growth it had enjoyed for many decades appears to have come to a halt. Uh, I suppose if you're New York, you can look at the silver lining. I think it's the first time they're not losing two seats in in many decades. Um, Where I'd say it's something of a uh, less than full terrific one, as you noted, you know, there's still a lot of creativity uh, opportunities for uh, people to draw district lines and you're going to end up with uh, Uh, You know, there's not a guarantee this is going to turn out to do a massive uh, advantage for Republicans in these states. But the other thing, which I think is two things that I think which are, you know, just kind of wrinkles to this. Um, But I had to look this up because of all the recent vacancies they've had in the House. As of this very moment, uh, at least as far as I know, it's the House is currently 218 Democrats, 212 Republicans. But there are five vacancies. Now, this past weekend, Troy Carter of Louisiana won his, the special house election. It's a very Democratic seat. He's going to get sworn in, if not today, then very, very soon. It'll be 219 to 212. Okay. Um, now, May 1st, they have a special house election in Texas. Republicans are almost certainly going to win that. That brings them up to 213. 
But on May 16th, Republican Steve Stivers is resigning to become the chair of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. So it's going to go back to 219 to 212 again. Um, there are other three vacancies. There's a Republicans who are favored in the special election for the Stivers seat. So that'll take them back up one. And those other three vacancies are in pretty heavily Democratic districts. So if everybody's, if every seat was filled and there was no vacancies, you got 221 to 214, seven seat difference. Republicans flip four seats in the 22 midterms. They'd have 218 seats and a majority, although obviously a very skinny one, you'd want to win well more than four seats. You look at this redistricting, it's very conceivable that, you know, just by itself, redistricting could get Republicans four more seats. But there is a catch. And that catch is that right now, Republicans have all the House seats in West Virginia. They're going to go from three to two. So any way you want to slice it, you're going to lose one. And as I mentioned, Ohio earlier, uh, at first thought, the thinking was that Stiver's retirement makes redistricting easier. You just eliminate his district. You take all of his voters. And by the way, it's a pretty darn Republican district, uh, R plus nine in the Cook Partisan Voting Index. You put them into other seats. You make other districts safer and more Republican leaning. And so instead of having a 12 to four Republican advantage, you've got an 11 to four Republican advantage. So there's two seats right there the Republicans have to make up somewhere else. But overall, all the Republicans need is just a mild wind at their back in the 22 midterms and they have a 2022 midterms. And then they have a really good chance of winning back the House. No, there's definitely some good opportunities out there. Uh, it also is a reminder that uh, the Democrats, for all the attention, of course, on the presidential race last year and the Senate, which somehow slipped through Republican fingers, although I think we know how, uh, and then the Republicans didn't quite get to where they hoped to in the House, although they did a lot better than anybody expected. One of the big surprises was that the Democrats, despite pumping a ton of money into uh, efforts to regain uh, control of the state legislatures, including in states like Texas and elsewhere, really flopped. I don't think they flipped any. And uh, that was particularly critical for this very reason. Every 10 years, you get this uh, list of uh, seats of gains and losses and just the redistricting process in general. And in most states, the state legislatures are the ones that take care of that. Uh, you obviously have to uh, get it past the governor if it, the governor's of a different party, like it will be in Pennsylvania and Michigan and so forth. But uh, definitely a, a major significant factor uh, coming into this is that Republicans do control so many of these uh, state legislatures. I would also say, you know, you look at these deep blue states. Oh, New York's losing a seat. Well, that'll be a Democrat. Uh, don't bet on that. Uh, they and Illinois and California will probably find a way to to squeeze out uh, one of the few Republicans who are part of their congressional delegations. But we'll see how that goes. Uh, and also, our Jim, our uh, common frequent reminder, if you're leaving a blue state because of oppressive government policies and high taxes and regulations, don't vote for the same crap wherever you go in a redder state, please. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you if it's like the doctor says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, stop doing that. <laughs> right. But it, uh, it doesn't seem to be that way. I, I saw some stuff. I think it was from Tennessee where uh, I, I forget exactly. I think they got a lot of libs moving into the Nashville area. But Tennessee, obviously, a pretty deep red state. And you got people with Facebook posts out there saying, you're welcome here, and I understand why you left there. Just don't vote for the stuff you hate there when you come here. And uh, it really shouldn't be much harder than that. But uh, we have seen that happen in a number of places, and hopefully it doesn't keep happening. But uh, 
something to watch as well. So, Jim, uh, well, whether the government uh, wants your tax dollars or or what it is, uh, keeping your fiscal house in order is very important. And for a lot of people, that also means getting control of your student loan debt. And with today's low interest rates, it's a great time to refinance those student loans. I mean, times are still tough and worrying about your student loan payments doesn't make things any easier. And that's why refinancing with earnest could help. Earnest offers low-rate student loan refinancing, and you can check your rate risk-free in just two minutes. With Earnest, you get radically flexible payments, and you get to pick your own loan term. By refinancing, you can reduce your loan term, save money, or combine multiple loans into a simple monthly payment. And if you have questions, you can even talk to a real live human being at Earnest for help. So isn't it time you stopped feeling overwhelmed by your student debt? Yes. So now Ernest is giving Three Martini Lunch listeners a $100 bonus. Refinance your student loans at earnest.com slash martini. Terms and conditions apply. Once again, you get a $100 cash bonus when you visit earnest.com slash martini to refinance your student loan. It is not available in all states. And remember that terms and conditions apply. All right, Jim, our bad martini is a follow-up to yesterday's bad martini, the report from the New York Times that leaked audio tapes uh, featuring the Iranian foreign minister Zarif, uh, revealing that John Kerry told him about some 200 uh, covert Israeli missions against uh, Iranian targets inside Syria. Like you said, I'm guessing Iran could have probably figured out where uh, where most of those uh, missions and uh and uh, problems uh, came from. But uh, now we've got, of course, the damage control. You've got a lot of Republicans saying John Kerry's got to go. John Kerry's official title, I just looked this up, is U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. Uh, It's not a uh, Senate-confirmed situation, so he serves at the pleasure of the president. There's nothing Congress could do about it, and he wouldn't be removed by Congress anyway. Uh, So all you can really do is put the heat on. And here's what is happening with this. Uh, John Kerry is disputing this entire story. Yesterday, he tweeted, I can tell you that this story and these allegations are unequivocally false. This never happened, either when I was Secretary of State or since. Ben Rhodes, who was, of course, Deputy National Security Advisor for President Obama and famously told the New York Times that he basically snookered the press corps into uh, publishing all of his uh, pro-Iran nuclear deal propaganda, has a very different take on this. He tweeted out uh, yesterday evening, Republicans pretending to be outraged about John Kerry talking about things that were widely and publicly known at the time is the classic disinformation campaign. Try to launder a lie through sufficient right-wing media outrage to get mainstream attention. So, of course, Jim, it's that radical Republican right-wing conspiracy that's always happening between the Iranian government and the New York Times. But uh, these guys can't get their story straight. So did he not say it or was it perfectly fine that he said it? Yeah. First of all, I want to salute you for a pretty good uh, John Kerry impression there, Greg. You're not the champ, though. It's got to be <laughs> breath here, like you're having an asthma attack. Um, so let be, let's begin. Yeah. First of all, there's these two simultaneous defenses. It's all a lie. And it's perfectly OK if he said it. Pick one. Pick a lane. And stick to it. You can't flip back and forth. Uh, although I guess wouldn't be the first time Kerry flip-flopped. Now would it, Greg? Um, I'm, I'm picturing a windsurfing ad in my head. Look, let's step back and do a little bit of background on this, right? So for Foreign Minister Zarif is, uh, Kerry and he met throughout the entirety of Obama's second term, right? This was, you know, this, the Iran deal was their baby. They met all the time. 
Um, certainly like usually multiple times a year. And what was interesting is that they, they apparently really did hit it off. Um, they were on a first name basis. I went back and found Washington Post articles that characterized them as quote, friendly, but not friends. But then the Financial Times was talking about the Kerry Zarif special relationship, right? So I don't, whether or not you want to characterize them as friends, I think it's safe to say that uh, John Kerry's, the person he's closest to in the Iranian government is Zarif. And I think that the vice versa is true. I think the person who Zarif is closest to in the US government is John Kerry, right? Now, what was Zarif saying this? Well, he was in this, uh, this conversation with apparently an Iranian economist that was doing a oral history of this era of the Iranian government in order to help, uh, document, help the next administration take place. Iran is having a presidential election in June. Um, but I, you can't see me making air quotes when I say election, but they have to go through the process of having an election on June 18th. Um, and, you know, in the, basically the Ayatollah will decide who, which, which, who among the candidates is most accept, acceptable. But anyway, Zarif clearly, because in addition to being critical of, uh, of John Kerry, he also really rips into Kasim Soleimani. And it's very clear that there's been this rivalry between uh, the Iranian Foreign Ministry and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. And Zarif is basically complaining, these guys never tell me anything. And the context of his... Uh, of his exchange was that that you know this, this was going on in Syria. Uh, Israel Israel was was you know attacking Iranian uh, institutions and places and forces, and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps wasn't telling the Foreign Ministry about this, right? And so the quote, at least in the New York Times, is Kerry has to tell me that Israel has attacked you two hundred times in Syria, uh, and he's complaining that they're always keeping him in the dark on really important stuff. So the interviewer asked, you did not know twice. And both times, Mr. Zarif replies, no, no. Now in this recording, he doesn't say when Kerry made the comment, but the fact that Zarif is surprised by this, I think we can safely say, okay, this is not after it has appeared in news articles from Reuters in September, 2018. Otherwise he wouldn't be surprised. It would be open public knowledge. So let's, let's take that idea and toss it all out. And then in yesterday's characterization, you know, Zarif said he was, he was reacting. He's surprised by this. So Kerry is definitely giving Zarif information that Zarif didn't know. Maybe the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps knew. I think it's likely that at minimum they strongly suspected the Israelis were going to do this. I think every time something the Iranians have in Syria blows up, they figure it's either the Israelis or it's us. And it's maybe, you know, most likely not us, right? Then again, every time the mullahs stub their toes, they probably think, ah, the Mossad was behind that. You know, that's just the way these guys think. Um, but, you know, as I said, Zarif really doesn't have any reason to lie about John Kerry. He's, you know, as far as we can tell, Zarif likes him, right? This is the, this is the most generous negotiator he's going to get. So the idea that, you know, Zarif is putting this out there as part of some disinformation effort to make Kerry look bad, why would Zarif want to make John Kerry look bad? This is, relatively speaking, his buddy. And as I said, the whole point of this anecdote is, boy, you're not going to believe what John Kerry told me. Zarif is saying this in the context of these, you know, Soleimani and the IRGC never tell me anything. I had to learn about stuff that's going on in Syria from John Kerry instead of from my own, guy, my own counterparts in the government. Right? Now, in the process, Zarif is pointing out that Kerry's telling him stuff, and I still feel like we don't have any clear answer on whether this was a deliberate Obama administration policy. We're going to share certain information with the Iranians in order to you know, win them over or something like that, or whether this was John Kerry freelancing. And Greg, you know, I, I, is it crazy? To, does John Kerry seem like the kind of guy who's going to stay in his lane? 
<laughs> is not going to go out and just blurt out things if he thinks it's I, just, it, you know, it's one of those things where this, this fits very well with what else we know of Kerry, but fine, you know. Um, now, here's the other the, kind of the other wrinkle is I mentioned that there's a, a presidential election in, uh, in, in Iran later this year. When people are saying, oh, it's or, you know, uh, Ben Rhodes says this is a conspiracy. Look, I think the leak of this information by somebody in Iran definitely has a political agenda, but I don't think it's designed to affect U.S. political, uh, uh, you know, politics. Although maybe this is somebody who wants to undermine the Biden administration efforts to restart the talks. I, I think that's kind of a ricochet bank shot sort of thing. I, I suppose it's possible. I think the most likely thing is that, you know, Zarif is seen as one of the reformers. Now, you and I have scoffed at whether, you know, how serious the reformers are, uh, how much of their vision of what Iran ought to be aligns with what the rest of the region can live with in terms of security. Um, and I think we also very much doubt whether the reformers, even if they did get into power, would really have the authority to uphold their end of the bargain. That's kind of a, a separate conversation. But in the context of this election, look, there are a bunch of guys who are formerly affiliated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps um, who are running for president. So if you're a fan of these guys, then at minimum, maybe you want to put this information out there to make Zarif look bad. Because clearly Zarif is embarrassed and people are yelling for his resignation and all the hardliners are upset. It doesn't look like Zarif is going to resign. It doesn't seem like the Ayatollah is all that upset about it. But it certainly doesn't make him look flattering for him to be trash talking Soleimani uh, two, three months before the election. So I kind of lay, I lay all this out in the morning, Jolt. This is how I see it. I don't think Kerry's denial is particularly plausible. Uh, I, I think Zarif is telling the truth. It sounds this, this is this way. And by the way, like, let's just kind of observe almost every foreign minister or secretary of state probably complains about the equivalent of the defense department, not looping them <laughs> in on important information. This is standard in all bureaucracies. Nobody ever thinks that they're getting enough information from the other guys. So this, I just, this just rings true to me. Um, and it just seems very plausible. Now, the interesting question is, like, how do the Israelis feel about the, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State sharing this information with the Iranians? And I don't think it's a good idea for the U.S. Secretary of State to be running around telling the Iranians what the Israelis are doing. Jim, I may have missed it. Is there any uh, indication in the Times reporting or in the audio tapes themselves that tells us for sure that it was while Kerry was Secretary of State or did it possibly come after he was Secretary of State? Because remember, Trump didn't nuke the uh, nuke deal until 2018 because uh, Rex Tillerson uh, and uh, H.R. McMaster didn't want him to leave the deal. So it was only when... Uh, Pompeo and uh, and Bolton were there uh, that he wanted to do that. I could have that second round of personnel wrong, but uh, and we know that Kerry was uh, trying to uh, work it out uh, behind the scenes to keep the deal in place. So, uh, do we have any clarity on that? We don't. The only thing we can kind of say is that the, the you know first reports that Israel had hit uh, two hundred Iranian targets came out in September twenty eighteen. And as I said earlier, the fact that Zarif seems surprised by this information suggests to me this has not been publicly reported by them. So I think we can say it was before September 2018, but we can't narrow it down any further than that. John Kerry, like we said yesterday, always making things worse. All right, let's talk about my slippers. And my slippers are on my feet right now, and these things are great. My slippers took two years to develop these things to make sure they're the highest in quality and comfort, and I can tell you, they are really comfortable. So, so soft, and I just love walking around the house in these things. And right now, uh, my slippers will give you 40% off with the promo code MARTINI at MyPillow.com. 
My slippers are durable. You can wear them all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. They have beautiful leather suede, cozy faux fur linings, and they come in moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors. They have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. They do not just have one layer of uh, cushioning. It's a three-tier cushioning system. They got the MyPillow patented fill, the Comfort Memory Foam, the patented Impact Gel. And for a limited time, MyPillow is offering 40% off my slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener's square. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Then use the code there. And while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on things like the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and the MyPillow Towel Sets. But you can only save that 40% on the new MySlippers with the promo code MARTINI. So call 800-874-0104 or visit MyPillow.com today. Jim, uh, I know it's uh, not going to make too many people very happy for us to start talking about 2024 when we're just barely at the 100th day of the Biden administration. And I'm sure we'll get a rousing, very memorable speech uh, to the joint session. Uh, I think it's tomorrow night, right? Uh, but we already are talking about 2024. We've mentioned Ron DeSantis uh, at times in passing. Uh, Nikki Haley clearly has some uh, desires to run. Uh, Tom Cotton. I mean, Ted Cruz will probably throw his hat in there. Uh maybe one or both senators from Florida. Uh, and so uh, on and on it goes. And another name that is uh, now popping up is Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, of course, is the conference chair for the House Republicans. She famously voted to impeach Trump the second time around following the January 6th uh, riots on Capitol Hill. And the story in the New York Post is that she is not ruling out a potential presidential bid. She's not ruling anything in or out Ever is a long time, she told The Post. She says, I think we have a huge number of interesting candidates, but I think that we're going to be in a good position to be able to take the White House. I do think that some of our candidates who led the charge, particularly the senators who led the unconstitutional charge not to certify the election, uh, that's disqualifying. Uh, so, uh, Jim, we'll see who else is in. We talked about Chris Christie also a few days ago. I don't see how Liz Cheney is a real viable candidate, no matter what she decides here, assuming she were to get in. Uh, I don't know that there's enough people on the right who love her for what she did on impeachment or anything else to really give her a ton of traction. And obviously, uh, the big swath of the base that still is quite loyal to President Trump will want nothing to do with her. Now, we certainly got a ton of people in the Democratic presidential race in 2020, who had no business being there, uh, so much so to the point that we created our own candidate uh, to be part of the field, and Irving Schmidlap, who is, uh, I'm happy to report, already running for 2024 on the Democratic side. Uh, but uh, what do you make of uh, Liz Cheney? Will it matter one way or the other if she decides to get in this thing? Well, I just want to point out the dedicated listener who has assigned himself the role of Irving <laughs> Schmidlap has started posting pictures of himself in earlier stages of his of his life. And I thought the whole point was that Irving Schmidlap didn't exist. <laughs> that he was the voice of the long neglected non-existent American community. And that the moment he actually has a face and, <laughs> and flesh and blood, the moment he becomes alive and become a real person, then what's the point? I thought what made Irving Schmidlap the ideal is that he, he was the perfect, like literally a blank slate. There was nothing to it. He did not exist. Therefore, he couldn't possibly have done anything you would be upset by. So remember a couple of days ago when we talked about Chris Christie and I really kind of poo-pooed his chances? 
Um, and I'm not, I'm kind of tired of Chris Christie. I think he's had his moment in the sun. I think he did some good things as governor of New Jersey. I think it was a disappointment in some other ways. And I think this, you know, his time in the national stage has passed. Um, I really like Liz Cheney and I'm going to poo-poo her chances too. And I, I'll, I'll say it now. It's not just, I'm going to say she's not going to be the Republican nominee. I don't think Liz Cheney is going to run for president. I do think she is responding to the incentive structure set up by our political media world in which if you are a potential presidential candidate, you are seen as a more important person, a bigger shot, a more relevant person, uh, and that everybody you know begins to lean forward in their seat whenever you give a speech under the wing. Oh, are they going to announce? Oh, is this it? Is this official? Are they running? You know, oh, oh, does, this, does this trip to Iowa mean something? You know? Um, I, I said, I like Liz Cheney a bunch. I, I do think she's sort of, um, I'd, I'd be very comfortable in a Republican party that fully embraced Liz Cheneyism. I have no illusions that the Republican party is in a state where it embraces Liz Cheneyism. And I don't think it's going, at least in the next couple of years, to become based upon Liz Cheneyism. Um, and I think she realizes that too. Let's also kind of observe Wyoming is not the perfect base to launch a Republican party, uh, a presidential bid, um, the entire three electoral votes and, and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, would she have certain strengths as a candidate? Sure. Um, and she, I suppose if it's possible, if someone uh, runs as the embodiment of Trumpism, but not Trump, and maybe she could emerge in a, in a very crowded pack as the voice of non-Trumpism or anti-Trumpism in the Republican circles. But I don't know if that gets you all that different from the, you know, also Rands who thought about running in 2016, uh, 2020 against Trump and who really didn't amount to much of anything. Um, I'm not sure, you know, like clearly the last couple of months have done a lot to raise her profile. Um, but I think it's just a, res you know, it's just a recognition that like, for some reason, just being a good member of the House or just being a good senator or just being a good governor isn't enough in American politics. You need to be someone who's in that conversation about being the next president. So the end result is you have 20 to 30 candidates like the Democrats had last time. And God knows how many you know candidates are going to run on the Republican side this time. I, this is not good for us. And I, I, it's one of those things where I don't want everybody and their brother to be considering themselves a presidential candidate until at least you know mid twenty. 23, when it starts to get real, you know, no one really, the, the fact that Deval Patrick got in late, didn't, he had zero impact on the process last time. I bet you, if you ask people, they probably couldn't name more than like, they'd be lucky naming half of all the Democrats who ran for president last time. Most of these efforts never amount to much of anything and are generally wastes of time and money and attention and then, you know, a limited amount of mental real estate in this country. But this is what the incentives are. And there's kind of a sense that if you're not a presidential candidate, you're not a big deal. So I understand why Liz Cheney is doing this. I suspect deep down, she realizes this is probably not the right path for her. Um, but she's, you know, if somebody asks, you know, most people would say, never say no, because you just never know who's going to, uh, uh, when you could suddenly catch fire and, and, you know, who knows, Greg, you could be the next Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> The next short-lived front runner for about a month or so. Are you declining to say whether you're in or out for 2024? Uh, I, I not only would not run for president. <laughs> I, I'm very much in that. You know, if I uh, if elected or, or if you know, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. I want nothing to do with government work. That's right. You'd have to give up your podcast, and that's way more important. So, <laughs> oh no, I'd keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that would be that would actually be really good for the podcast. Uh, you mentioned the also rans, and for about five seconds, I was thinking. Who ran against him again? Oh, yeah, Joe Walsh and William Weld. They really changed the landscape of American politics uh, in 2020. And my last question is, um, with Chris Christie, you said he had his moment in the sun. Is that a reference to two terms as governor and a presidential campaign or was the time he shut down the beach except for himself? I was going to say, he was on the beach. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, Chris uh, roadblock Christie. That too. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't want Christie in the Oval Office. I do want him maybe drafted by the Jets for that offensive line. <laughs> Good note to end Tuesday on. Yes, before you get into too much more trouble. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Uh, we're very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And follow us on Twitter, please. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. And please join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. There never seems to be a shortage of content for the media. Riots are on the rise after more shootings have occurred. People are eager to get back to pre-COVID ways, and celebrities have more influence than ever before. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.